1: Today's podcast is presented by EPRA, the European Public Real Estate Association. Facing global megatrends like green transition and aging population, how will listed real estate contribute to a sustainable future and financial security for Europe?
2: The podcast will begin after this message.
3: A message from FPIA, the European Federation of Pharmaceutical Industries and Associations. Each year, European medical innovations save millions of lives across the globe. FPA wants to keep Europe at the forefront of medical innovation through continued investment in cutting-edge research and development. Read FPA's vision for keeping Europe at the forefront of producing life-saving new medicines at fpa.eu.
2: Welcome to this week's EU Confidential, the number one European politics podcast. Ryan Heath is getting married. I know that may sound familiar, but if you like something, why do it only once? So it's news editor Andrew Gray here filling in this week. As we record the podcast, the European People's Party is choosing its lead candidate for next year's European Parliament election. But how much of a contest has it been? Manfred Weber looks to have had it wrapped up from the start. But the EPP did at least manage to get two contenders to the finish line. The socialists only have Franz Timmermans to choose from, after Maris Shevchevich pulled out of the race this week. We'll talk about all of that with our Brussels Brains Trust, who also tackle the US midterms and what they mean for Europe, and how worried Europe should or shouldn't be about Russian interference in elections. And Russia is the focus of our main guest, Bill Browder. He was once the largest foreign investor in Russia, but is now a fierce critic of Vladimir Putin. He's the driving force behind what's called the Magnitsky Act, a way of applying financial and other sanctions to human rights abusers. He tells the story behind the Act and how he's trying to bring it into the EU. That's all coming up in this week's EU Confidential. Now, this week's interview with Bill Browder is conducted by our Chief Brussels Correspondent David Herzenhorn, who's also a former Russia correspondent. So, before the interview, let's set it up with David outlining a bit more about Bill Browder and how he came to pioneer the Magnitsky Act. So, David, you spoke uh, earlier this week to Bill Browder. Maybe just for people who don't know who he is, we just start with
4: the very basic question, who is he and and why was he here? Well, Bill Browder was once uh, Russia's largest foreign investor, running a company called Hermitage Capital Management and then became Vladimir Putin's public enemy number one. He was forced out of the country, deported. Russia's been trying to arrest him ever since, issued multiple red notices with Interpol. What happened was that Browder's company was in Russia was seized from him, and his lawyer, a man named Sergei Magnitsky, uncovered a huge tax fraud, $230 million tax fraud carried out allegedly by Russian government officials using the seized company. And Magnitsky was actually killed. He died in prison after a clear mistreatment, being imprisoned uh, for his connection to Browder. And Browder has made avenging the death of Magnitsky his life's mission and passion. And he worked very hard to get the United States Congress, most of all, to adopt what's called the Sergei Magnitsky Act, essentially a law that punishes human rights abusers, denying them visas, seizing their assets, and essentially forcing a response when there are clear allegations of human rights abuses.
2: Okay. And so as we'll hear in the interview, he's, he's trying to get a similar acts passed in, in different countries and also at EU level. I guess, in, you know, for the sake of balance, is there a debate? You, you lived in Moscow, you covered Russia. Can you outline the debate pro and contra the Magnitsky Act? What do critics say about this, about this act,
4: even those who might be critical of Russia? Even at the time the Obama administration had opposed this, seeing it as legislatively an overreach of power, the complicated question becomes, how do you demonstrably prove human rights abuse? we know that national parliaments are not in the business of of acting in the way that courts do. And so when you have a situation where someone has not necessarily been brought up on charges, who hasn't been tried in a court of law, who hasn't had an opportunity to make a defense, how then can you be justified in imposing what are some very, very severe sanctions? Now, the alternative view is there are some clear-cut cases. And once there is sufficient evidence, governments should be able to act and respond in ways that a court never could because no uh, government may extradite a top official implicated in an assassination, say.
2: Mm. What does uh, Moscow make of Browder and the Magnitsky acts that he's managed to get
4: into law around the world? Well, Putin despises this, despises the name Magnitsky. Russia has issued these red notices with Interpol trying to get Browder arrested multiple times. They view Browder as a criminal. Putin has demanded Browder's extradition. Western governments have obviously refused and seen Russia's efforts to go after him as politically motivated. But, you know, as Russia has denied involvement in the Skripal poisoning in the UK, or in numerous other cases of alleged abuse, they see this as a complete overreach by Western governments, discrimination against Russia, unwarranted extra sovereign activity by Western governments.
2: Okay, and finally, I don't know if you've had a chance, but have you had a chance to gauge around this town where, you know, what chances his efforts have on an EU level of getting an act like this passed?
4: In the EU, passing anything like this is quite complicated, and even figuring out the right way for the EU to do this is complicated, whether it would be through traditional legislation, which requires both the Parliament and the Council to get together, or if this is something that could be done in the Council of Ministers by foreign affairs ministers as part of the EU's common foreign policy. So we know, you know, certainly the EU sees itself as a paragon. Of uh, human rights and a defender globally of human rights so Browder will have on that level many many allies here in Brussels one of the questions for him has been whether he can even keep Magnitsky's name on the legislation that he's proposed because some views that, that is overly provocative knowing how Putin and Russia respond just to having Magnitsky's name on any uh, policy like that.
2: Okay great David we'll hear the interview next. David Herzenhorn thanks very much. Thank you.
4: Well, welcome, uh, Bill Browder, the CEO of uh, Hermitage Capital Management, to Politico Europe's offices here in Brussels. Maybe you could start out by telling us what brings you to town.
1: Well, I'm in town lobbying for an EU Magnitsky Act. I've been doing this for about nine years. I've been doing this all over the world with a lot more success than I've had in the EU. We've succeeded in six other countries before we've gotten any traction. But the reason I'm here now is that we've got, finally got some traction on an EU Magnitsky Act with some issues as well. And who are you actually lobbying? Whenever you talk about Brussels, it's like some type of weird M.C. Escher labyrinthian situation where you start someplace and you end up back in the wrong place and so on and so forth. But in order to explain how I'm lobbying, I should probably give you a little history on the EU Magnitsky Act and what happened here. I originally started this process of trying to get a Magnitsky Act here nine years ago after Sergei Magnitsky, my lawyer in Russia, was murdered by the Putin regime And I went through a whole number of iterations. We started with the European Parliament. And the European Parliament is very much of a human rights-oriented body, and they bought in and latched on to this concept of Magnitsky sanctions. In 2014, the European Parliament passed a resolution unanimously calling on the EU to do Magnitsky sanctions. And then in 2015, the head of the foreign policy body, or the foreign ministry of the EU, Federica Mogherini, wrote back to the parliament saying, nah, I don't think it's a good idea. So on one hand, you had the elected representatives of Europe saying, we think this is a great idea, and unanimously called for it. And then on the other side, you had an unelected person, not even sure how she was appointed, who decided, nah, it wasn't a good idea. And that was the end of the story. And And the message I got from various other people in in her office was, don't even try it here, just go to try to get it done at each EU member state. So we went out to the EU member states, and we eventually got Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania, and the UK to sign up and have Magnitsky Acts. And then I went to Holland, and this is where the story gets interesting. I went to Holland, and the parliament, members of the parliament asked the government, let's do a Dutch Magnitsky Act. And they really didn't want to do a Magnitsky Act in in Holland. So they said, no, we think it would be a better idea if we do it at an EU level, knowing full well that the EU had already said no. But what they didn't anticipate was that the guys in the parliament then said, OK, we're going to now propose a resolution in the Dutch parliament, which calls on the government to go to the EU and formally try to get an EU Magnitsky Act. And if that doesn't work, then come back here in five months and do a national Dutch Magnitsky Act. So five months came and went, and they didn't come to the EU. And so my Dutch parliamentary allies went to the government and said, hey, what's going on? And at that point, the Dutch government has now formally started an EU Magnitsky Act proposal. But they've made one crucial deletion from this whole effort, which is to appease Vladimir Putin, they've taken Sergei Magnitsky's name off of The EU Magnitsky Act proposal. So what am I doing here in Brussels? I'm doing what I've done everywhere else in the world, which is I'm going to the press, I'm going to the European Parliament, and I'm going to the official bodies and saying it's horribly immoral, unjust, and wrong to delete Sergei Magnitsky's name from history in order to appease Vladimir Putin.
4: And did you notice the dialogue with the Dutch change at all in light of MH17? Had that happened when you first started out, the downing of the airliner over eastern Ukraine?
1: We started this process long, long before eastern Ukraine, MH17, or anything. And the Dutch have always been reluctant to do anything. And even after MH17 went down, they kept on this very firm footing. And most interestingly, when, when I had sort of frank conversations with people sort of off the record, I had people from the government party, from the government party in the parliament, pull me aside and saying, Bill, you understand this is really about business. We don't want to upset business with Russia.
4: It's kind of amazing that you're you're still fighting this this fight just to keep the Magnitsky name on legislation that's already, as he's mentioned, has been approved.
1: I had to fight this in the U.S., by the way. There's a, a story which—so the Russians have hate Magnitsky's name more than anything. Vladimir Putin hates Magnitsky's name more than anything because it's the name that defines him as a kleptocrat. Basically, it defines him personally as a kleptocrat by, because all of his actions have been to— Exonerate the people who killed Sergei Magnitsky and who stole $230 million. And in doing so, he's pretty much sort of thrown his lot in with kleptocrats and killers. And Vladimir Putin hates the Magnitsky name. And in April of 2016, when the US Congress was considering the Global Magnitsky Act, Putin's representative, Natalia Veselnitskaya, the lady lawyer who went to Trump Tower to try to get Magnitsky repealed the Magnitsky Act repealed, also went to Congress and got a very famous American congressman, a man Republican from Orange County named Dana Rohrbacher, who's considered to be Putin's favorite congressman, to propose deleting Sergei Magnitsky's name from the Global Magnitsky Act in America. And when it went for a vote in the Foreign Affairs Committee, the vote was 30 to one against, in other words, to keep Magnitsky's name on the on the legislation. This is not the first time we've dealt with it. It's not the last time. We deal with it everywhere. I have to say that it's never easy getting governments to do the right thing. Um, It's a lot easier to get parliaments to do the right thing, and that's how we've succeeded everywhere in the world.
4: So I wanted to tell you about an exchange I had here with Lloyd Blankfein, the uh, retiring CEO of Goldman Sachs, uh, right here in Politico's offices about six months or so ago, partly because I was thinking of you very much as we, we had this exchange. And Blankfein, head of Goldman Sachs, the most prominent investment bank in the world, was discussing politics in Washington, saying how ugly it was, and it's terrible, the worst he's ever seen, and yet, you know, the economy was doing well, kind of there was more to the story. I ended up getting the the very last question before he snuck out the door, and I pointed out to him that the way he talked about Washington sounded to me a lot like the way sources talked to me about Russia in the 2000s, hmm. including sources who, uh, who worked for Goldman Sachs. They said, you know, Putin's come in, the politics are bad, they're getting worse, they're getting worse, but everybody's making so much money. And you were one of those guys, you were Russia's biggest foreign investor, you were one of those guys making big money in those days. And yet the prevailing sentiment was, the politics are ugly, but there's business to do. And so what I asked Blankfein was, you know, do you feel any social responsibility? For example... Would Goldman get in on the Saudi Aramco IPO, this potential trillion-dollar valuation of a small slice? And he said, absolutely, of course, this is the way you liberalize economies, you invest, went on and on. And I wonder now about your reaction to that, looking back on your own views of, of the Putin regime as it got underway, and also in light of your own recent comments that the Magnitsky Act, a global Magnitsky Act, should be used in the case of Jamal Khashoggi, was killed, we know and believe, in the consulate in Istanbul by the Saudi regime. How do you see these pieces together? And what do you think about Blankfein's answer there?
1: Well, there's a lot of questions there. Let me unpack them one by one. So first of all, I was, of course, as time has shown, completely wrong about my first impressions of Vladimir Putin, that um, at the time, um, I actually thought he was going to reform the economy because he was going after oligarchs at the very beginning. I didn't realize that he was going, only going after oligarchs because he wanted to be the biggest oligarch himself. And, of course, look at where Russia is now. And, you know, Russia has turned into a total, absolute, terrible basket case of a country, both politically, economically, and morally. And so I was wrong about Vladimir Putin. And it's instructive for any person who sees a country going in the wrong direction to say business is good. And therefore, let's not worry about the politics. Let me talk about Saudi Arabia. First of all, it's, you have a leader of a country which, according to all the intelligence, was involved in a, a grotesque, gruesome murder of a dissident, and that cannot be allowed to go unpunished. If that goes unpunished, it gives a green light to every other dictator, including that one, to do a lot of other terrible things, and that has to be punished. How should it be punished? Well, the first and easiest thing to do is to actually take this legislation that we created to freeze assets and ban visas and apply it liberally to everybody involved in the murder, and we know who the people are who are involved in the murder, and everybody who was involved in the cover-up, and we can now start to see who was involved in the cover-up. Should it apply to the crown prince? If it's proven that he was involved in the murder, then it should absolutely be applied to the crown prince. If it is applied to any of these people, it will have a much greater effect than almost any other person who's subject to these sanctions, because being sanctioned under the Magnitsky Act effectively puts you out of business. And for people with a lot of money, and a lot of these Saudis in the government are rich beyond most people's wildest dreams, um, that money effectively gets frozen anywhere
4: in the world. For people who don't know the details, explain what that would mean. I mean, it essentially means no travel to the United States. Is that right? In very formal terms, it means your visas get canceled to the United
1: States, your assets get frozen in the United States. That doesn't sound so terrible for most people if they don't have assets in the United States and don't want to travel to the United States. But there's one provision or effect of the Magnitsky Act which is so devastating, and that is that when you get sanctioned under the Magnitsky Act, you get put on the OFAC sanctions list. The OFAC sanctions list is the U.S. Treasury sanctions list. And on the U.S. Treasury sanctions list, they put terrorists, they put drug barons, they put all sorts of North Koreans, Iranians, et cetera, The moment you get put on that list, every bank in the world has an automatic database which updates their own files with that list, and then they compare that list with all their customers. And if anybody has any money on account at that bank, it gets frozen. And why does it get frozen? It gets frozen because the bank doesn't want to be in violation of U.S. Treasury sanctions. Why does the bank not want to be in violation of U.S. Treasury sanctions? Because let's say that a person's got a billion dollars at that bank, if they transfer that billion dollars to, let's say, the Saudi commercial bank, if such a bank exists, the moment that they transfer that money, they're potentially liable for three times the amount of that money in fines to the U.S. Treasury. They'll have to pay a $3 billion fine to the U.S. Treasury. How much money do they get for the wire transfer? $150. And so every bank in the world, doesn't matter what kind of lawsuits are coming down the pike from the customer, won't move the money. So that's the first thing that should happen to the people who were involved in the killing and cover-up of Khashoggi. But I would argue that coming back to the profit maximization objectives of, of Lloyd Blankvane or anyone else for that matter, is it's potentially very unprofitable to do business with murderers and human rights violators because you could end up getting in a real mess with all these sanctions where you get stuck with their money and you get fined by the Treasury if you move it and you get sued by the owner of that money if you don't. I would say it's almost in their own financial interest to stay away from these villains.
4: I'm curious, at your opinion as a, as somebody who's an expert in the financial industry, as a potential shareholder, theoretically, if Aramco becomes a public company on the London Exchange or New York, as Donald Trump has personally requested, if shareholders' rights are allegedly violated, what's the recourse? You have, to, you have you no recourse. King? I mean, is there any, under any laws that we know of, Is should this be a public company? In your view, it, does that apply to Gazprom as well? Have we learned that, in fact... Gazprom is not a regular public company where shareholders would have recourse rights. So I learned the hard
1: way that you have no recourse. I was a shareholder activist fighting corruption at Gazprom. And what happened to me? I was expelled from the country. My offices raided. My companies were seized. My lawyer who investigated all the raids and seizures was then arrested, tortured, and killed after he discovered a a corruption scheme. And then they came after me and issued seven Interpol red notices and have threatened me and threatened my colleagues and sued me in various jurisdictions and accused me of all sorts of crimes, et cetera, et cetera. And so there is no recourse when you deal with a criminal regime and only downside
4: I mean, we shouldn't miss the moment to take note that you created some recourse. I mean, it's not a small thing that there is now recourse in the case of of Khashoggi where state actors who violate human rights potentially face... I mean, there are tools for the American government or for governments around the world to use to bring people to justice who might otherwise be unaccountable, and that is the legacy of Sergei Magnitsky. Hopefully his legacy, the fact
1: that, that we create consequences for impunity saves lives in the future. That's the hope, is that if bad guys say, well, on one hand, I can profit from doing bad. On the other hand, I can be penalized pretty significantly by the United States or maybe the EU in some future date. Maybe I shouldn't do that bad thing because um, my patron, my boss, the dictator might not be around. And then uh, what am I going to do when I'm on that sanctions list for the rest of my
4: life? Maybe we can come back to the EU and the obstacles you still face. Here you mentioned Federica Mogherini, who's still the high representative for foreign affairs. She's also Italian, and the Italian government, not just the one currently in power, has often been seen as more friendly than not to Moscow, resistant to additional Russia sanctions, even open to considering easing the sanctions that do exist. So I wonder if you'd walk us through some of the biggest obstacles to getting a Magnitsky Act done here in Brussels, to your mind.
1: The major obstacle in the EU is the Putin appeasement crowd. And some of them are totally complicit. The Cypriots are completely sort of intravenously connected to Russian money. And then there's some Italians that are benefiting financially from this whole thing. And some of them are just sort of scared, scared of not wanting to be in the firing line of Vladimir Putin. And you combine criminality, corruption, and cowardice, and you get a pretty strong opposition to doing anything that might hold Putin accountable. Even that the fact that there's a discussion about easing Crimea sanctions is just unthinkable to me. What does that say? If, if all of a sudden, if the sanctions were put on because of an invasion where the Russians redrew a border and the Russians have not withdrawn from that or complied with any of the Minsk agreements or other agreements to stop doing their bad behavior and they get rewarded by sanctions being lifted, What does that say? That says to every bad guy everywhere, go ahead and do whatever you
2: want because all you have to do is just wait it out. That was Bill Browder talking to David Herzenhorn. Coming next, the podcast panel talk about Russia as well as the US midterms and the European Spitzenkandidat process.
3: Today's episode is presented by FPA, the European Federation of Pharmaceutical Industries and Associations. Good news is often hard to come across at the moment, but consider this. Over the past 20 years, cancer deaths have fallen by a fifth in Europe. EU citizens can now expect to live three decades longer than they could a century ago. Millions of lives are saved each year because of new vaccinations. Europe is a great success story when it comes to creating the new medicines that are changing lives across the globe. Let's spread the good news. Read FPA's vision for keeping Europe at the forefront of producing life saving new medicines at fpa.eu.
2: And now it's time for the podcast panel. So welcome, Alva Finn.
3: Good morning.
2: Welcome, Lina Aberous.
5: Good morning, Andrew. Good morning. Gala. And
2: special guest this week joining us to mix things up a bit, Carmen Pound. Hi, Carmen.
5: Hello, Andrew. Hello, everybody.
2: So thanks again for for joining us. thought we would start by talking about the big elections in the US. Um, there's been a lot of interest in them and very high turnout in the US as well. So a lot of interest there too. But Europe seems to, I think, have paid more attention to these midterms than any that I can remember for a while. What do they mean for Europe and what should we be thinking about them? Carmen, what do you think?
6: Just talking about how much interest has been in Europe about these elections. There was a funny thing that happened yesterday to my husband, who is American. He was shopping at our local Carrefour, and the guy at the at the cashier asked him, you know, if he was happy about the result. And he came to me, and he was completely taken aback by the fact that, you know, the guy at Carrefour was interested in the midterm election and what he thought about it. And I think the main issue is related to the fact that. Trump is the president, so probably many Europeans were hoping that he's going to get a beating in the elections. Obviously, he, you know, the Republicans lost the House, but not the Senate, so probably not necessarily the result that many Europeans would have wanted. It's one of those things where both sides can claim a victory. So it's not the blue wave that some hoped for. But at the same time, obviously, things are changing in the in the house. However, some of our colleagues across the pond reported recently, many of the US-EU relations still rely on Trump and, and his kind of responsibilities, uh, the trade issue, foreign policy. So from that point of view, probably not
5: so much is going to change.
2: Lena, what do you think?
5: I'm still looking forward to having a a change, having a way to stop the still. I don't know if it's a a horror movie that we are living that uh, we have the president of the free world is is President Trump. So everyone wants any little change, any kind of um, moving the boat in a different direction. Mm. Definitely, he's is going to still be a president and definitely Europe has to be working with him uh, for some time everyone is is worried about the trade everyone is worried about the iran deal and he made sure that now everything that was built is already destroyed so let's see how after destroying all the existing uh, agreements what would be next
2: alva what do you think any any changes expected as a result of this
0: i hope that the lesson is learned that you know you should ride the feminist wave that's happening at the moment We, at present, do not have any Spitzenkandidat who are women, for example. And also we have a lot of centre-leaning politicians moving to the right. We just heard that Macron thinks that Europe is too liberal, when actually I think that it was inspirational that so many new candidates, so many women, so many people of colour ran and won. I mean, there's so many firsts. First two, first Muslim congresswomen, Yeah. Just first across the board. And how do you ride that wave? Because I think that it shows what beats populism is hope for the future, but still saying that we have a problem. And I think that was definitely in some of the campaigns that I watched, that was one of the main things that led to a good turnout. We have to remember in Europe, we can't rely on a turnout the way they have in the U.S., We're going to have a much lower turnout in European Parliament elections. So yeah, I think we need to learn that if you are a Liberal or you're progressive, you need to be proudly so. Do not move to the right in order to steal voters because they are only going to come out for the far right if that's what they want to vote for.
2: Okay, and that takes us on quite nicely to the question of the European Parliament election. As we record this, the European People's Party have gathered in Helsinki, they're going to pick their Spitzenkandidat, so their lead candidate for the European Parliament election, who will also be their candidate to be the President of the European Commission. What do we think about that process? There are two candidates, at least, for the EPP, but it's widely considered, as we record this, that Manfred Weber will win easily. And on the other side, the main other side, if you like, uh, the socialists, it's just one candidate. Uh, there. So what do we make of this process and how it, and how it's playing out alva do you want to start
0: i think ryan will be super upset that he's not here because his whole thing is you know they should be debating and that should be more like an american primary so the parties should have an internal process that is public and that allows you or allows at least a certain amount of democracy in action. I take an opposing view to that because I think when we look at the way that the primaries have been going, for example, in the US, yeah, it doesn't go very well. And I can't, yeah. Is there any European examples of where this works? I think that it is a feature of why things have become so polarized. You know, having these very polarizing debates from the outset, even among your party
6: members. I I don't know. I think that's probably a bit dangerous.
2: Carmen, what do you think?
6: Well, obviously, the EPP in their debate steered clear, maybe a bit too much of this polarizing debate. Um, it wasn't so much of a debate, but more of a chat. I guess it's good that it's happening, but we have to be aware that, you know, probably people in other capitals uh, that just go about their daily lives don't know that this process is happening. And they don't know that by voting for X party in their country, which is then part of the bigger EPP family, they would somehow indirectly choose the commission president.
2: Yeah. Lena, what do you what do you think? You know, is this a good system for picking our our leaders, or is there a better one?
5: I can't t- too much to judge. I come from the Middle East where we... Luckily, I live in a country where we love what we have, but still we don't get the chance or the level of democracy uh, Europe and the rest of the world enjoy. I think, as Carmen said, there is a lack of simplifying the message to the European citizens on how this process is really taking place. And again, it's a problem in the communication. It's a problem in the way of reaching out...
2: To move on to one more thing, something that's talked about a lot with regard to the European election, also been talked about a lot with regard to American democracy, American elections. The question of Russian interference, which came up again recently in the UK um, over uh, recent revelations or questions about uh, the sources of funding for some of the unofficial leave campaign in the Brexit referendum and uh, stirred up a lot of interest and raised the question once again of Russian influence. How big a deal is it in our electoral process? How worried should we be? Carmen, what do you think about this?
6: Well, sometimes you get the feeling that every time we don't like an election result or referendum result, we blame the Russians. And I've actually seen a meme on Facebook recently about that with a dog that had brought down the Christmas tree and said it was the Russians who did it. Obviously, you know, there's been clear proof of of some influence in the US. But at the same time, I, I feel like we have to take a step back and also realize that this is nothing new. The US itself has interfered in elections in different places in the world where it it has influence. Maybe not to the extent the Russians have done it through social media, which was very creative, we've seen, but the big powers, let's say so, have tried to influence elections in their spheres of influence. Mm -hmm. So I think the debate has been a bit polarized to just blaming the Russians. Obviously, we have to be aware of what's going on. We have to be a bit more critical of social media and how we consume it and how much that influences our choices, political choices or not. But at the same time, to realise it's not only the Russians that have done it, and in a way it's not really such a new process.
2: Okay, Alva, I think you have a slightly different view.
6: Yeah, I
0: think we should be very concerned. I mean, we already have heard the alarm being sounded from neighbours of Russia who are in the European Union who have repeatedly said, you know, and they've always been doing it, it's true, but now they have much much more sophisticated ways of influencing populations. And that's the problem, I think. The way that they are doing it on social media, they have armies of people that we do not have basically trying to influence our elections through online people, person-to-person or bot-to-person tactics. And I think that's the problem. And I suppose the other thing that I think it was very different in the Russian-U.S relations and interference during the 2016 elections was this strange connection between WikiLeaks, Edward Snowden, all of that, which probably isn't going to be a factor in these elections, but you never know. What if they start hacking the EPP and trying to do all of this? Those two things to me were the real differences because, I mean, a lot of people would say that the leaks basically affected why people didn't come out for Hillary.
2: That is the big question. How much effect does this have on the way people vote? But Alina, I mean, you work in the, in the area of influencing in, in public affairs. How effective do you think these Russian campaigns, if we accept that they exist, and there seems to be widespread evidence that they do, are they effective, do you think? How worried should we be?
5: You certainly should be worried because it happened it took place so why not it can happen again and this is a, a kind of, of of tech and uh, science and progress so i believe there will have even better ways and more advanced ways to reach to the european mass but in the meantime you see a very a slow response from the Europeans and from the European institutions and from the European communication bodies existing here in Brussels and in the member states. This is where Europe, I think, is behind, and they're not picking up. They're not picking up.
2: Okay, well, we'll have to leave it there. Carmen, Alva, Lina, thanks very much. Podcasting, as Ryan always says, is a team game, and this week the team included Eddie Wax and Antonio Fernandez, and we'll be back next week with another EU Confidential.